Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and as always... On Close Reads, I am joined by two snivelers after the ineffable, Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever been called today. <laughs> um, so... David, do we have a special guest? <laughs> we, I was, uh, we do, we have a special so guest today. So special! Another, another sniveler after the ineffable. We are joined by Graham Pittman. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you. So my, I think my voice cracked on the very first words. Like, we're, we're, we're off to the races. That was the best <laughs> confident opener I've ever heard. Hello. Uh, well, it was good to be here. Uh, I, Graham, a brief appearance. Graham and I share a mutual enthusiasm for this particular story. We are here as all as as we have been in recent weeks to discuss Flannery O'Connor's collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. This episode is concerning the enduring chill. Graham, what I've been asking everybody when they come on to the sh- you know come on to a Flannery O'Connor show, I asked um, Tim mm-hmm. this, Angelina this, and then yesterday I asked Ralph Wood this. But what's where? What was your first experience with Flannery O'Connor? Before I answer that, I just need to let Tim know. That this is more of an audition for me. Oh, oh. To play the role of Tim in season three. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to recast. Just be on your guard. I will. I'm watching over my shoulder. Okay. Tim, I got to be a little honest about this. Yeah. We're looking for cheaper options. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. No, market market drives value, you guys. He's market dragging drives the whole value. show's budget down. I I I get paid in literal peanuts, and I love. It. <laughs> Tim, that peanut allergy holding you back as usual. <laughs> and yep, and Tim, right. I gotta say, um, it's it's a lot cheaper to just buy him peanuts than to pay you nothing and deal with you. So mm-hmm. yes, right, right. And well, as... that's that's the nature of being a diva. <laughs> Have and as, to the occasion. Say that again. As <laughs> evidence, as evidence by my voice cracking, I am very nervous to be here with such high celebrities <laughs> as Tim and Angelina, <laughs> who are probably getting recognized on the streets. I, I, I might even recognize you on the street. Wait, hold on, hold on. Did I tell you guys the story about when I went to the Circe conference two years ago, and I was having a conversation with someone, kind of like you know, the, the pre-conference, you know, cheese and cracker event. And I'm having a conversation with someone. sweated a lot? What's that? Is this when you sweated an inordinate amount? I, I think it might have even, I think it was that event. Oh, which time would that be? <laughs> yeah, right. We need, to be, we need to clarify that a little bit more. So I'm in there. It's just called being woman, alive. This woman turns and she faces me and she's listening to me and she says, Hello, Tim McIntosh. And I did not recognize her, and I thought, oh, this is someone who I have met before 
I've clearly forgotten her face. I'm a little bit embarrassed that I just have no recollection of this person. And I said, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't remember meeting you before. And she said, we've never met before. I just know your voice. And I said, oh my gosh, yeah, that's a thing. When you do close reads, when you do a podcast, this is the sort of thing that happens. People will recognize your voice. I get this at homeschool conventions. People will come up randomly. Like I remember one, a couple of years ago when we had just started doing this and the podcast was kind of kicking, you know, kind of growing. We were doing shows, but they were kind of not this, they hadn't been where they are now anyway. And I'm talking to someone trying to describe Lost Tools or something and someone is walking by and she stops and she turns and looks at me and she goes, you do that podcast. And then she just kept walking. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. So now I get that. I get that. And, you know, I I never thought of myself as someone who has a voice for radio. So, you know. Because you you have the stunning good looks for television. I mean, I didn't say it. Would you like me to... Would you like me to answer your question? <laughs> no, I do. I do. This is the way it goes, Graham. Yeah, you need to Graham, get used to you just got to ride that wave, baby. Yeah, you ride the wave. But please, now Graham, is your moment. Graham's revealing he doesn't listen to enough of these shows. Uh, yeah, really. But I have listened to one or two of, of these uh, particular Flannery ones that you guys have done. Wait, and... one or two? Well, there's only been three. Well, I don't know how many there's been. Uh and they are I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't I can't participate in this. Graham, if you have not been Andrew, hanging on my I'm every try, word, I'm out. He's trying to compliment us. Accept it. Okay. That, that's that's all I'll you say. You ruined it you ruined it, the ability of the rest of us to accept a compliment. Alright, this is going on. I'm a southern so, woman, that's what happens. Uh, hey <laughs> Graham, so Flannery O'Connor, your your first experiences. Yeah. Um, so I discovered Flannery O'Connor when I was twenty. Um uh and it was this collection, in fact, um, which remains my favorite collection of hers. Um, and I was living actually with David at the time in Iowa. Um, and it was during the winter. It was freezing. Um, so we were cooped up inside, uh, oftentimes up in the attic with a stack of books. Um, and <laughs> so... Um... It makes it difficult for me to record this with Graham in the same room. It's funny because, like, when Graham and I just hang out, we have we've known each other for so long that we have like shared experiences, and I always want to make like inside jokes about stuff that are both like inappropriate for the show and also just like no one would understand. <laughs> I'm so intrigued with this image of the yeah. two of you huddled in an attic with a bunch of books. Continue, please. This is well, that... fascinating. Was there a skeleton of your mom up there too? Like. <laughs> Just describe it more. <laughs> that you know that is disturbing. Go on. <laughs> so, so you've discovered Flannery O'Connor, and your first impression was what? Amazement, absolute amazement. Um, and she remains one of my favorite authors, top five. So, what's Graham, your... Graham? Amazement. Did you did you feel on first read that you really kind of got her? Yes, and then I realized uh, in, in subsequent years I did not. Um, and now I'm coming back around to thinking I understand it more again. Uh-huh. Um, but but her characters are the things, or, or the thing in the story that really, um, I just thought they were incredible. Um, I did not grow up in the Deep South. I did not relate to a lot of her imagery. But in such a, sh- a sparse, short story, she reveals so much of that world and makes it so real. Um, and the characters are so real. Um, 
Yeah, I thought it was incredible. Did they seem outlandish, Graham? Because no, 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 because, no, I don't think so. And maybe you guys have touched on this before, but I think her characters, um, you see yourself in, in almost every single character in some way mm-hmm. in a Flannery story. It's each character holds up a, a mirror um, and you see the good and the bad in yourself while you're reading. And being at an impressionable age, I would consider uh, 20 years old, um, these stories, I would say most of them had an impact on my life that actually changed me in some way at, at that time. Um, specifically this one and the first one, which is kind of like a sister story to it, the, uh, the Everything That Rises Must Converge. So it's um, interesting that you should say that because the, the, the discussion I had with Ralph Wood, which is not currently live when we're recording this on Friday, but by Monday, you know, people, many listeners will have, have uh, listened to it already. But in that, he talks about how Flannery O'Connor, when he was 20, he was at college and she came to speak at the college that he was, he was going wow. to. <laughs> this little East Texas uh, college, he had a professor there who was Catholic who invited her out. And when he first started reading her, you know, he felt like something was had changed him. And so he talks a little bit about that at the beginning of the show. But um, one of the reasons I thought, you know, Graham heard we were doing the Enduring Chill and he's like, oh, I want to I want to be involved in that conversation. And I knew that we had a mutual appreciation for it. But mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I thought that was a good idea is because it almost can help us reset the, the, the our approach to her a little bit. Not that not like reset the whole show, but it's just good to have that extra perspective when you've been talking yeah. about something for three or four weeks. So um, before we go any further, I do want to like give you a chance to. Many of our listeners will know who you are, and some won't. So, who are you, and why are you're you talking to me? Yeah, you, Graham. Mm. The, I'm looking, to, looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why? Uh, why? What? What's your connection to Cersei for people who don't know? I am the the two people that don't know. I am the creative director at Cersei, so I I I do a lot of promotion and design and photography. Uh, working my way up to CEO. Um, <laughs> it's a long journey. Yeah, long journey. I I have. I've taken zero steps to get there, but there's only one or two people in between us. So. Uh, we uh, always joke that Macbeth is like, I mean, that uh, Cersei is like, you know, Macbeth Scotland. Like, just yeah. look out, Andrew. There is so much paranoia in this office. <laughs> no, I come in. I uh, David and I share an office. We joke around. We listen to music. We design cool stuff. And then we go home. And basically, we're, we're the office in... in our room in the office is like the the uh, what what would you call it the heartbeat of Cersei the uh, <laughs> yeah epi- we're the only epi- people that do any work epicenter yeah <laughs> um, just it's okay Angela, it doesn't matter no one who works here listens to the show oh that's true oh. <laughs> I love the epicenter that was that was great yeah Graham is Graham is the genius behind all of the great images that uh, all of you see for the for the Cersei Institute. And in fact, I was joking with him earlier today about I wasn't sure how this podcast was going to work because Graham literally talks. He communicates in pictures, memes and gifs. If you text with Graham, that is what you're you're not going to get words. You're going to get pictures. <laughs> so, this is I know this is a struggle for you, Graham. You're probably like imagining all the right images for each of the things you want to say. Well, no, he just uses that little thing where it pulls up all the gifs for you and you can yeah. choose one of 12. Angelina, all I have to say to that is <laughs> <laughs> that was a, good. That's a great that picture. Was really that's good. A, I'm yeah. okay, Tim. You you were just gonna say something, Tim? Oh, I was gonna say. I'm really serious about this. Searcy to me looks like a multi-million-dollar organization, and it's because they got great designers behind it. So, 
seriously, Circe looks great. Um, and I think the greatness is probably far, the, the look of Circe far outstrips the actual budget is what I suspect. Well, you know, you can do a lot with those uh, Photoshop apps now. <laughs> uh, Graham's I, got all those filters. Uh, he just takes No, he just left. He just walked out. Um, so, Tim, I was not sure where you were going to go with that. You said it outstrips the budget, but I wasn't sure if you were going to say the budget or the talent or something like that. <laughs> I was also not sure where he was going with that. I was holding my breath like, what is happening? <laughs> So I landed. I would say I landed golden. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yes. So speaking of talents, let's talk um, the enduring chill. Let's talk Asbury Fox. Um, this is my favorite story by Flannery O'Connor, and as much as I love her other stuff, it's probably not close. Um, wow. I, I I love a lot of her work, um, and there's been no one who's been more influential in terms of my own writing the way I teach, the what my reading, but this particular story, um, I'm not arguing that it is the best of her stories, but it is the one that I think means the most to me. Um, and uh, we have not talked about this, um, bef- you know, prior to the show. Sometimes we get a chance to talk about, you know, how we felt about different stories. But I would love to hear from you, Angelina and Tim, about how this story strikes you um, as you know, in comparison to the first three that we, that we did in comparison to everything that rises must converge green leaf and a view of the woods. Um, Tim, I'll let you go first. Um, and then Angelina, we'll, we'll toss that over to you. I like next to, this is probably my favorite next to everything that rises must converge. I think it's super, it's really taught and very, very concise in the same way that everything that rises must converge is. I feel like green leaf, and a view of the woods are a little bit, ah, they're a little bit wobbly thematically to me. Whereas the other two, they're so concise. They're just like a bullet shot right after what she's going after. Mm-hmm. And I have a theory that I will talk about later about that I'll, I'll, well, I'll bring it up. Is it, we kind of discussed a little bit. Is it whether Asbury and his mother and his sister and the priest are real? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure Georgia is real. I've <laughs> <laughs> never been there, huh? Um if you if you've been there, you 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 would know it's real. Um Angelina, so what uh what what's your impression? Your what was your first impression of well, the story? Well, to be honest, Maybe not your first impression, but your your Yeah, yeah. Well, to be honest, I, I hated it. Because no one died. It was so disappointing. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, it's just so different in tone from the others, you know, and, and doesn't have that um, sense of foreboding. I mean, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's a typical Flannery O'Connor story, and you've got the same pattern and the same setup. And the reversal here, of course, is that he's, he doesn't die. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's an appropriate spoiler. Everyone, everyone, people need it. They need a little break here. Um, so yeah, I feel like it was just a lot lighter in tone than the others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I liked it, but I don't know that I would say it's it's a favorite. You know, I tend toward the dark. There's that's no surprise. So um, two things. One, uh, Doctor Wood mentioned in the show that this was the story that 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 um, Flannery said she had the hardest time writing. Huh. Ah. particularly the ending that is because, so interesting because she said it was the first the only story she wrote where god actually appears in the story which mm. is really, which is a really interesting way of putting it mm. 
Um, but I also, it's interesting that you mentioned there's not the sense of foreboding because I actually kind of, I don't know that I would say I disagree with that because I think it might be a matter of semantics, but I actually think that she is in a really genius way, um, creating a sense of foreboding in it through like some of these certain little throwaway lines and stuff where, um, she's really building up to the end. And what, it, what you don't get necessarily in this story that you get in other ones where you anticipate a death is you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Which I think, which I think creates a sense of tension that that is almost um, is, is more tense, if you will, than when you, when you pretty much can anticipate that someone's going to die. Because there's really? no sense. You're like, wait, is this person going to die? Is he, what's going well, on? Is he really sick? Is he not? But whereas, like in Green Life, you know that the show she was going to die. In the View of the Woods, we she kept telling us through the whole story that someone's going to die. Yeah, and I think I think on my very first reading of this, and maybe maybe listeners um, can relate. I don't know, um, but I did not. I did. I thought he was going to die. I thought he was deathly ill. And then when when the reverse happens at the end, you just like, oh, this 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 guy's just a fool. This guy, this guy's just melodramatic. And then when you read it through again, you're like, oh yeah, this this guy's completely melodramatic the whole way through. And the doctor sees that, um, his sister sees that, his long suffering mother is, you know, trying to help him as best she could. But um, hey. I think it's fairly obvious as you read it that that he's just kind of a fool. Another okay, thing, because yeah, I don't know is... if it's because I read it before and knew he wasn't going to die, but yeah, I never thought he was going to die as I read the story because I kept thinking he has he has he has attached so much like meaningful significance to his life yeah. with the fact that he's going to die this artist's death, so it has to be denied him. <laughs> yes, and 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 as you read it, it uh, subsequently. It's just hilarious, like the the steps he takes throughout the whole thing. Even even sneaking down the hallway in an Afghan to listen to a conversation that somebody else is having about him <laughs> to try to like see, oh, what's the significance? What are they talking about me? You know. I will say um, this though, it's it's not predictable. Even though I never felt like he was gonna die, it was a sweet twist that he made himself sick. In his, you know, that turns out yeah. his mother's <laughs> wisdom had something to it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually. I don't think he made himself sick. I think the two uh, dairy farmers made him sick on purpose. But oh, um, you think they did hey, something to him? Oh, yeah. They're playing a trick on him. But before we get further, let's <laughs> um, let's let's summarize. Tim, you're our resident summarizer. So for those who may have not read it in a for while, for now, right? Till till Graham takes over. <laughs> Can you, in fact, Graham? Would you like to audition for the resident summarizer? No, job? no, no. He's I've already got a that. GIF ready to go. <laughs> yeah, he does. Hey. Tim, yeah, he just showed it to Tim, me. Yeah. You're, Tim, you're a master. It's, it's a shrug. You're a master. Go ahead. Tim, why don't you go ahead and summarize for us, just for people who maybe are reading it this time through, but they've read it in the past and sure. maybe just need a quick refresher. So Asbury Fox uh, arrives home on the train as the story begins. He's picked up by his mother and by his sister. Uh, he's deathly ill in his own mind. He's gonna. He's on his way to dying. His mother... Uh, recommends that they bring Dr. Block in to have a look at him. And he, Asbury Fox, keeps repeating this cryptic phrase, what I have, Dr. Block can't heal me of. Yeah. Um, so he goes upstairs once he gets home, and he com- he commences to kind of get on with his death. He's shivering, he's ill. There's not much that happens as far as plot. The major plot points 
happened through a couple of recollections that Asbury has while he's in his supposed deathbed. He remembers that there are two farmhands, two black farmhands that he kind of wants to commune with and experience their life as part of his playwriting venture. He goes and he speaks to them. They both, they all um, steal a cigarette together, even though Asbury's mother has forbidden this. And then later they steal a glass of warm milk together, even though this is also something that his mother has forbidden. We find out later that, unless you're David, the milk um, poisoned him and the made him catch this fever. Well, I'll explain in a minute. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the milk is not, I don't think the milk's poisoned. The milk's unpasteurized, but I think that the the farmhands there are, well, I'll show you in a minute. Okay. Uh, Dr. Block visits a couple times. Asbury is convinced that he's going to die, and he asks for a Jesuit priest to come visit him hoping that the Jesuit priest will be able to kind of communicate with him, with Asbury, over art, because art is Asbury's god. He is going to, um, he kind of has a James Joyce kind of idea of the role of the art of, of art in his life. Oh, the yeah, Jesuit he asked the priest, priest to talk about Joyce. Yeah, that's good. And the priest does not know. Yeah, I never met him. That was funny. Yeah, that was, funny. Joyce, that was, yeah, that was so very funny. What do you think about Joyce? Oh, I've never met him. <laughs> um, the Jesuit priest is kind of a big, clumsy oaf who's only concerned with introducing Asbury to God. This is clearly not what Asbury wanted out of the scenario. No, the opposite. The, he wants the opposite. The priest goes home. Dr. Block ends up coming back after Asbury has said his goodbyes. He's clearly expecting to die. Block <laughs> comes back. Block says, great news. You're actually going to live. We know what the problem is. It's a fever that can be remedied. And this kind of turn happens with Asbury in which he recognizes that he is going to live despite his death wish. And in living, this veneer is stripped away from his view of the world. And he begins, it looks like, to see his life clearly as the, as the story closes. His his literal chill gets replaced by a different kind of chill, mm -hmm. and 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 I think one of the big plot points um, is the letter that he writes to his mom, mm -hmm. um, detailing how her failures have mm. caused him grief, and, and he he's writing it to give to her so that she'll be hurt. Uh, not only that she'll be hurt, he he says that he hopes it'll help 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 her grow or help change her or whatever, but he wants to hurt her. Right. Um, and this is how this story parallels everything that rises mm -hmm. quite a bit in that you have um, a main character who has some sort of, uh, he despises his either upbringing home. Uh, in this case, it's both, both mm -hmm. mother. Um, in this story, I think you don't see like I would describe uh, Mrs. Fox as long suffering and you don't yeah. really get a huge sense yeah. of why he's so angry. Right. Right. Um, or not, or not as much of a sense as in uh, everything that rises. Uh, but, but you can tell, I think it mentions a couple of times you see some of the things that kind of irk him. Well, she's um, small, right? She's small. He's cultured. Yeah. And the, is... the only time she erupts at him, it's twice. 
and it's within the same page. Um, she says something to him icily, I think, and fiercely. And mm. it's when he, he says, um, he just keeps get, he just keeps pushing her and pushing her and pushing her. And then yeah. finally she's like, I'm not going to let you die. You know, that's the only time you see her, um, described that way and it's when she's trying to protect him even more mm-hmm. um and so like this woman it seems to be like she obviously has her problems uh, uh and that that asbury is very self-righteous about um but she see she seems like a really nice character um, especially compared yeah, to the mother and everything that rises oh yeah or right. mrs may you know like may. very puzzling all this animosity he has toward her yeah well both of those both everything that rises and the enduring chill are seem to be somewhat autobiographical. Oh, yes. I was definitely about, thinking about that. You know, they're about young writers who, convinced of their genius, head off somewhere to find culture and are forced to come back and rely on their mothers, <clears throat> which, of course, is the same thing that happened of, of O'Connor. Mm-hmm. The, really, the only difference being that O'Connor um, had real genius. But you, I can't help but wonder if somewhere along the way, young O'Connor... Um, thinking through or, or, or realizing her own prejudices towards her mother, which if you look at her letters and know something about her biography and stuff, she actually had a very real prejudice against her mother. She, mm-hmm. she didn't, you know, there were, there were some complications in there. They had a very complicated relationship and you, and I can't help but wonder if she had a moment like what's in the enduring chill where she realized that like Asbury Fox, she was going to, in the end have to stay home and be, and rely on her mother to care for her. You know, Asbury's illness is going to come and go. He's going to have good days and bad guy, bad days, but he's most likely going to have to rely on her for the duration of her, at least yeah. her life to, you know, there's going to be the days when he's bedridden. Um, and, I, you know, against everything that his, his pride stands for, he's going to have to rely on her to care for him. And so he's going to be tethered to his home. And O'Connor came to value that, right? And she came to appreciate that. And, and you... I guess you could hope that that's what happens with, with Asbury moving, you know, as he moves forward in his life. Um, Graham, I want to ask Graham a question. Graham, you said that his chill is replaced by another chill. And it made me think of the last line of the entire uh, story, but the Holy ghost emblazoned in ice instead of fire continued implacable to descend. Explain what you mean by another chill replaced the chill that he had. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and explain that for me, Tim? I, I don't know. I genuinely well, do you, don't know. Do you mean by the second chill the idea that like when we experience something profound or transcendent, we get that chill in our spine uh, type thing? No, I think – no, because I think Flannery O'Connor is getting – like she, she says that the dove – or sorry, the, the bird um, descends, right? Like the dove descends mm-hmm. um, in the Gospels. Yeah, that's a good um, So So we've got the Holy Ghost coming onto him. And what and it says it gives him an enduring chill, right? Uh, he saw that for the rest of the day as frail, racked, but enduring. He would live in the face of a purifying terror. Um, and he mentioned the chill earlier when he goes numb. Um, I actually underlined so, all the places in the story where it talked about the chill, so I'm finding this very fascinating. Well, and it, it says that as this is going on, his legs... His- his leg, his limbs that had been racked for so many weeks by fever and chill were numb now. The old mm-hmm. life in him was exhausted, and he awaited the coming of new. Mm-hmm. It was then that he felt the beginning of a chill, a chill so peculiar, so light, that it was like a warm ripple across a deeper sea right. of cold. And, his breath came short. And this is indicative, 
Right, right. It says it's like the Holy Spirit coming upon mm-hmm. him. See, the uh, Holy Spirit she... comes down in the waters of baptism, but this is ice, you see? So it's that idea. It's, yeah. it's going to pierce his heart. It's like an icicle. You Violent. Know? Violent. Yeah. 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 And, and, and this, I mean, this is my reading of it um, and has been. And I think um, throughout the story, what's the line, Tim, that he keeps saying? What I have, he can't help me with, or mm-hmm. you can't yeah. help me with? Mm-hmm. And that's that's like a multi-level, you know, he's speaking on different levels there, right? So it's true. It's also false. It's, it's false and true at the same time. Oh, yeah. he so did help him. He did, but he couldn't help him uh, through his spiritual malaise. Um, the only person that seemed to get through to him was the priest because he left him shocked with his eyes like saucers, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a child. And I don't, and, and it doesn't seem like that's the moment of grace. Mm-mm. It seems like when he gets that that diagnosis that he doesn't want, for some reason that that is the moment. And I don't, I don't know why. I'd love to hear why you guys so, think that's. I don't think this is a story about a moment, though. I think this because she's giving these hints all throughout that this is about like a longer process. And um, one of the things that is interesting is that he, you remember the letter he writes to his mom that you mentioned, Graham, Mm -hmm. he blames her that he is, he's a bad writer because of her. Um, Let's look at that real quick. Okay. Yeah. If reading it would be painful, if reading it would be painful to her, writing it had sometimes been unbearable to him for in order to face her, he had had to face himself. I came here to escape the slave's atmosphere of home, he had written, to find freedom, to liberate my imagination, to take it like a hawk from its cage and set it whirling off into the widening gyre, which is such a stupid reference by him, but it's hilarious. And what did I find? It was incapable of flight. It was some sort of bird you had domesticated, sitting huffy in its pen, refusing to come out. The next words were underscored twice. I have no imagination. I have no talent. I can't create. I have nothing but the desire for these things. Why didn't you kill that too? Woman, why did you pinion me? Um, But the the interesting thing is, so he blames her for not having imagination, but then he constantly reveals that he has imagination. Um, He could, even just in believing that he is sick unto death, is is imaginative, right? But then if you look, um, when he first sees the bird in the room, which is just on the opposite page in my volume. Um, it talks about, he says when she, she, she leaves him in the room and he says, or I guess the book says when she was gone, he lay for some time staring at the water stains on the gray walls descending from the top molding. Long icicle shapes had been etched by leaks and directly over his bed on the ceiling. Another leak had made a fierce bird with spread wings. It had an icicle crosswise in its beak and there were smaller icicles depending, de- uh, depending from its wings and tail. It had been there since his childhood and had always irritated him and sometimes had frightened him. He had often had the illusion that it was in motion and about to descend mysteriously and set the icicle on his head. He closed his eyes and thought, I won't have to look at it for many more days. And presently he went to sleep. And so, like, he does have imagination. And it's so whatever, however she raised him in whatever, you know, religious circumstances, whatever conversations they had, however he was raised, he was raised with some some seed of imagination and it's that seed of imagination that allows him to in the end um see that as the holy spirit right because when he sees that for the first as he's growing up he sees it as this bird on the ceiling and it's that that's that's part of a longer process and throughout the story she constantly is referring to different little moments that play into his change so you get You get that the line, there was a continuous thud in the back of Asbury's head as if his heart had got trapped in it and was fighting to get out. 
And then a couple lines later is the part where the doctor takes the blood. And as he's taking his blood, he's humming a hymn. So it says he's humming a hymn as he pressed the needle in. Asbury lay with a rigid, outraged stare while the privacy of his blood was invaded by this idiot. It's a great line. (laughs) Slowly, Lord, but sure, Block sang in a murmuring voice. Oh, slowly, Lord, but sure. And so, like, I think that's indicating that there's this, that this sometimes it's not that one moment that changes you entirely. It's a slow process, and, and God works on us slowly, slowly, slowly. And then later on, um, it says, um, talks about the there's there's one line in particular there's a lot of different ones i could reference but um it says you know he has the talk conversation with the priest which i'm going to hold off on talking about um but then he says later on he says he had a sudden terrible foreboding that the fate awaiting him was going to be more shattering than any he could have reckoned on um, it says he knew that there would be no significant experience before he died, which, of course, is, you know, flips around. But then the last line, but the Holy Ghost emblazoned on ice instead of fire, which you referenced, Angelina, continued implacable to descend. And so, like, that, like, even just using the word continued there implies that this is there's a longer process thing going on. So I think, unlike a lot of her other stories, this is the long way of saying I think that it's it's a longer process thing that's going on. I totally it's, agree. One of the things that I wrote in the margin was he's always on the cusp of seeing throughout yeah. the whole story. I mean, the first paragraph shows you that, right? Because he gets off the yeah. off the train and he, he has this feeling that yeah. there's more to this right. small town, right? But he can't quite get it. Asbury well, felt it, that he was about to witness a majestic transformation, that the flat of roofs might at any moment turn into the mounting turrets of some exotic temple for a god he didn't know. The illusion lasted exactly only a moment. Happened. Yeah. It, that's, that's your foreshadowing right there. It's like instead yes. of foreshadowing a death, it's foreshadowing a birth. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and there and were, I, I, I saw the, the same temple. thing. Picks up all those, little, all those little moments all through the thing that he's almost there. He's almost there. But, you know, all of, so all of Flannery O'Connor's stories work on the construct of the reversal. But in this story, it's, it's a different sort of reversal, right? So it, in everything that rises must converge, you think it's the mom that's going to have, the, you know, the moment of grace. And it's really, it's really right. Julian. He flips it around. But here what's interesting is the only time the phrase the enduring chill is used is when Asbury says it about his mother. He, is, he writes that letter hoping to give her the enduring chill. But but the you know the reversal here then is that it's him, he's yeah. the which one. I can see O'Connor writing and chuckling and being like, oh, they're all going to think that's the enduring chill, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Like writerly humor. I also thought it was okay. I think this is part of the reason why it seemed like a different sort of tone to me in this story because when it started off, and maybe this is just because of my background in Victorian literature, but it felt like a Victorian story to me. This whole like you just catch a chill one day and the next day you're dying, you know. And he comes into town like he's Keats, right? Like this yeah. tragic loss of talent. He's gonna die young, and he in that melodramatic thing. I burned all my poems, you know. He's just. I just, I just kept thinking of Keats. Like he's come into town like he's Keats, and he's, he's so dropping not... Yates references when they yes. don't belong. Yeah. Yes, yes. Kafka. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He is completely absorbed in his melodrama, um, and I think which is I... imaginative in and of itself, and then it's about resha- yeah. it's about reshaping that imagination. But I, I think I identified with him when I first read it yeah. A, a, yeah. as a young person because I think you also like once you you know get out of high school or college or whatever. you're you're away from your parents and you start feeling like a little sick or something you're like oh what is this am i dying you know it's like very melodramatic you're very important at that age so each each ailment you get is very important 
Um, and then so like I'm reading this story kind of identifying with this guy and then you realize he's just a fool. Uh, and then you realize you have to like think about that with yourself. Um, <laughs> uh, if, especially if you're identifying with him. But there's this uh, irony, right, that even in his foolishness, even with all his bad motivations, he actually is longing for the right things, right? So he, he, yes. when he's ill, he longs for home. He hates home, but he longs for home, right? And, yeah, yeah. and even though his dismissal of the doctor is because he feels superior, right, and his uh, wanting uh, to talk to a Jesuit priest is to, again, assert his superiority, that's a right longing. The doctor can't help me. I need a priest. Right. And his even his search for meaning there, like there needs to be meaning in this death, and he keeps getting thwarted, um, which is hilarious. Each time it's hilarious to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, and that contrasted with those scenes at the university, right, where he goes to this, everything's yeah. an illusion, pain's an illusion, there is no death, and he, but he want he doesn't want it to be an illusion. He wants it to be real and meaningful. Mm-hmm. So let's. Let's talk then about the passage with the priest because I think this plays into that. Um, let's let's just read. It. I think there's two passages that we should read um, in completion. Let's see here. Mine mine starts on page 105. Yeah. And I love how when the priest comes, he rearranges the chairs for him. He makes it into a cell. He makes it. Yeah, he makes no, it. No, that was like but again no, very he ima- has imagination. Like, like Tom Sawyer, right? Like he's gonna yeah. die the right way. Yeah, he has imagination. He's just immature. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's see, T- uh, Tim. Why don't yeah. you play Asbury? Okay, Graham. Why don't you be the the uh, priest? Oh dear. Um, I will read the narrator, and then Angelina, if the mother's in it, you read that. How about that? All right. This is typecasting, but I'll roll with it. I don't think she's in it. Oh, I see what you're doing, David. Yeah, yeah no. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, so let's start with Mrs. Fox stiffened and did not budge. Yeah, I think you might be out of a, some lines here, Angelina. That's okay. Uh, I can handle it. Mrs. Fox stiffened and did not budge. <laughs> I'd like to talk to Father Flynn alone, Asbury said, feeling suddenly that he had an ally. Although he did not expect it, he had not expected a priest like this one. His mother gave him a disgusted look and left the room. He knew she would go no further than just outside the door. It's nice to have you to come, Asbury said. This place is incredibly dreary. There's no one here of an intelligent person can. There's no one here an intelligent person can talk to. I wonder, what you think of Joyce, Father? <laughs> the priest lifted his chair and pushed farther. You'll have to shout, he said, blind in one eye and deaf in one ear. What do you think of Joyce? Asbury said louder. Joyce? Joyce who? asked the priest. James Joyce, Asbury said and laughed. The the priest brushed his huge hand in the air as if he were bothered by gnats. I haven't met him, he said. Now, do you say your morning and night prayers? Asbury appeared confused. Joyce was a great writer, he murmured. Oh, shoot. Joyce was a great writer, he murmured. <laughs> stage directions, stage directions, yeah, Tim. Right. <laughs> Tim needs him before the line. Yeah. Oh, you don't, eh, said the priest. Well, you'll never learn to be good unless you pray regularly. You cannot love Jesus unless you speak to him. The myth of the dying God has always fascinated me, Asbury shouted, but the priest did not appear to catch it. Do you have trouble with purity? 
he demanded, and as Asbury paled, he went on without waiting for an answer. We all do, but you must pray to the Holy Ghost for it. Mind, heart, and body. Nothing is overcome without prayer. Pray with your family. Do you pray with your family? God forbid, Asbury murmured. My mother doesn't have time to pray, and my sister is an atheist, he shouted. A shame, said the priest. Then you must pray for them. The artist prays by creating, Asbury ventured. Not enough, snapped the priest. If you do not pray daily, you are neglecting your immortal soul. Do you know your catechism? Certainly not, Asbury muttered. Who made you? Different people believe different things about that, Asbury said. God made you. Who is God? God is an idea created by man, Asbury said, feeling that he was getting into his stride, that the two could play at this. God is a spirit infinitely perfect, the priest said. You are a very ignorant boy. Why did God make you? God didn't. God made you to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next, the old priest said in a battering voice. If you don't apply yourself to your catechism, how do you expect to know how to save your immortal soul? Asbury saw that he had made a mistake and that it was time to get rid of the old fool. Listen, he said, I'm not a Roman. A poor excuse for not saying your prayers. <laughs> Asbury slumped slightly in the bed. I'm dying, he shouted. But you're not dead yet, said the priest. And how do you expect to meet God face to face when you've never spoken to him? How do you expect to get what you don't ask for? God does not send the Holy Ghost to those who do not ask for him. Ask him to send the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, Asbury said. Are you so ignorant you've never heard of the Holy Ghost? Certainly I've heard of the Holy Ghost, Asbury said furiously, and the Holy Ghost is the last thing I'm looking for. And he may be the last thing you get. Boom! <laughs> so do y'all think this, this means that he asked? <clears throat> well, let's talk about that in a second. Perhaps. Well, okay, go ahead. Let's talk about it now. Not, you're not talking about right then, right? No, but I mean, if he gets the Holy Spirit at the end, did, does that mean that at some point he asked for it? I don't know. Perhaps. It's just striking me that, well, I mean, O'Connor obviously put that in there intentionally. Yeah, I think that um, I've wondered about the scene with the blood, if that could play into it. I've I've been trying to detect if there's any moments when the priest in some way contacts him in a way that there's like something like that could have happened there. Well, it um, says he, he feels like he's pinned to the bed after a little while. Well, I mean, yeah, if we keep reading, of course, he says the Holy Ghost will not come until you see yourself as you are, a lazy, ignorant, conceited youth. So maybe that's the moment. Maybe he does come to realize that. Hmm. Hey, okay, so he leaves the room. If we go ahead a little bit. And then the priest chastises the mother. You've failed him. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. hey, let's, let's jump ahead a little bit to the next morning. So it's like two paragraphs ahead. There, yeah, there is that thing about the failure so and the mother. But then it says, the next morning he was so weak that she made up her mind he must go to the hospital. I'm not going to any hospital, he kept repeating, turning his thudding head from side to side as if he wanted to work it loose from his body. I'm not going to any hospital as long as I'm conscious. He was thinking bitterly that once he lost consciousness, she could drag him off to the hospital and fill him full of blood and prolong his misery for days. Um, that's, that's interesting. So there's the taking out of the blood, the going in of blood. That's that's there's something sacrificial about that. You know, we yeah, talked yeah. About the reference to the temple early on. He was convinced that the end was approaching, that it would be today, and he was tormented now, thinking of his useless life. 
which is kind of true, right? It ended up kind of being an end. He felt as if he were a shell that had to be filled with something, but he did not know what. So there's like, in, there's might be an internal moment of questioning here, or of, of like asking for something here. Yeah, because he, he needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost, right? And so right after that, he looks yep. up at the bird. Yeah, so, okay, so it says he began to take note of everything in the room as if for the last time. So ostensibly he's doing it because he's just kind of taking it all in before he dies, but there's something more going on. The ridiculous antique furniture, the pattern in the rug, the silly picture his mother had replaced. He even looked at the first fierce bird with the icicle in its beak and felt that it was there for some purpose that he couldn't divine. And then there's this. This is really important. There was something he was searching for. Something that he felt he must have. Some last, significant, culminating experience that he must make for himself before he died. Make for himself out of his own intelligence. He had always relied on himself and had never been a sniveller after the ineffable. (laughs) And then jump ahead two paragraphs. So it grows... Okay, jump ahead one paragraph. As the day wore on, he grew more and more frantic for fear he would die without making some last meaningful experience for himself. And then the next paragraph. The light in the room was beginning to have an odd quality almost as if it were taking on a presence. In a darkened form, it entered and seemed to wait. Outside, it appeared to move no farther than the edge of the faded tree line. And I think this is the real beginning. Like, yeah. there's a bunch of beginnings, and then this is where it... Yeah, I of, underline it, it that, too. A, it takes a new... new um, kind of takes a new form. Um, suddenly, he thought of that experience of communion that he had had in the dairy with the Negroes when they had smoked together. And at once, he began to tremble with excitement. They would smoke together one last time. And then he calls them up and they, they talk. But so if he if he's asking, it seems to be happening like maybe it's not he directly asks, but he's longing for something. Right. And he's his imagination and his 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 moral imagination, his spiritual imagination is open to something. You know, he's not a nihilist like Julian. Right. There's yeah. something more going on. And he just he's been looking in the wrong places. His pride has gotten in the way. And when the priest talks to him like that and he opens it, his eyes are open that way. Like that's super. I mean, like she didn't do that on accident that she walks in and he sat up and opened his eyes. Right. And his eyes are wide. Right. Mm-hmm. So his eyes have been open to something about himself. Graham, you look like you're going to say something. Yeah. So uh, where he says he, he has to have some meaning brought forth from his own intelligence. And I think that's where you see. So he thinks the conversation with the workers is going to do it. It doesn't. He thinks bringing the Jesuits going to do it. It doesn't. Writing the letter to his mother is going to do it. He doesn't get that chance either. And so it's when maybe he gives up and realizes, I can't do this out of my own intelligence, pride, whatever it is, is when you see that ending come. Um, and where he's broken in that too, his whole his whole framework or paradigm shift out of, I'm not dying. Um all, everything I've been trying to do up until this point, it's kind of gone. It just kind of went away um, with that news. And then it's a, you know, that's when the Holy Spirit's coming at the end. I th- yeah. I think the big shift that it seems that happens is Asbury goes from being the purported author of his own experience to being kind of like the subject of reality, if that makes any sense. So he's he's over and over, not only does he want to be an author, yeah, but he wants to create experiences that will be meaningful for him. And it's so funny because think about the way that the priest barges in. The, the <laughs> yeah. priest just, like, <laughs> there's no, 
um, subtleties of interpretation with the priest. He comes in like a force of nature. Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely. There's there's no discussion about what other people believe about what happens after death. The priest just states like this kind of like hurricane force that this is what happens when you die. There's one God. You'll be subject to him. You've got to get your soul straight. And it's so... And it made me think... This is the theory that I mentioned earlier. It made me think that... I wonder if O'Connor kind of saw her task as an artist as sort of like the same Aww. task as this bullying You're Jesuit right. priest. There's nothing subtle about him, right? No, there's nothing well, and, subtle about and him. And he's off-putting. He's off-putting. And, and he, he is. And Asbury even says he... He's like, I kind of could enjoy this conversation. I can... I, you know, two people could do this. And then right as yeah. he says that... The priest basically takes over the conversation, and then Asbury tries to respond by saying, God didn't, and there's the ellipsis, and then it says, God made you to know him, and the priest just bullies him over by saying that line, which is right. really powerful little And I think thing it's really interesting that the only times that we've seen other artists mention in her stories, in fact, these are the only, this is the only story that I can recall other novelists being mentioned. Um, it's Joyce is one of them, and Joyce is... James Joyce, I think, is probably the antithesis of what O'Connor wants from her art. Mm-hmm. Think about like one of those last lines from The Portrait of the Artist's Young Man by James Joyce. I will – it's all about he is going to forge experience inside of himself. Welcome, O life. I go to encounter the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. That's he's gonna make <laughs> he's gonna make in his soul the uncreated conscience of his race. That's so the opposite of what O'Connor is about in this story and her other stories. It's not about like um the imperialistic uh domestication of experience. It's Asbury kind of like comes to reality when he recognizes that reality is outside of him and impressing itself down on him well and you even see that in how he gets sick right because he thinks he's going down there and he's having this moment of communion and it's like he's playing like julian where he thinks he's showing some goodwill mm. to the black uh people who work for his mother and so do, do you think that he they thinks he's making vengeance it... on him because he got him in trouble for the tobacco no i well i mean i don't i think they're making fun of him so i think that um because it's the next day that he drinks the milk and gets sick. Um, so, um, I'm well, sorry, we, yeah, I derailed your thought. It's okay. Um, but, well, but it's just funny that he thinks, you know, he thinks he's being, you know, generous and kind and loving and that he's going to free. He talks constantly about freedom, right? With the two black people who work for yeah. each other, the two black guys. And he, and he, He's like constantly like doing this is going to free you. You can get you to basically do whatever you want. Um, mm-hmm. we don't, and, and, and they just, I think they just see through it and they're smarter. They're smarter than that, even though they may not see it, seem it on the surface. And so he thinks he's doing that. And then in the end, in, in acting that way, he, it, it, that's the thing that causes him to get sick. Yeah. And, I would just say one more thing about the James Joyce reference. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting that that Asbury thinks he's returning home to what he perceives as slavery, 
right? Mm -hmm. The slavery of this home. And it's so interesting that by juxtaposition, James Joyce thinks that he's going to achieve freedom by leaving home. That's how, that's how the portrait of the artist as a young man closes. Stephen Daedalus is going to leave home and, and achieve freedom. Asbury thinks that by returning home, he's entering into slavery again. But he actually, by entering home, by being bedridden, that's the avenue by which he achieves freedom in the end. It's a complete reversal yeah. of, of what James Joyce is about. Well, that's a well, great, and, great And it's the gospel, though, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that. I mean, I don't need to say anything more than that. Let's well, talk. Okay, to- wait. Before we Go do ahead, that, though, ahead. so one thing I looked for this time as I read it, because of what we talked about in the last story of You from the Woods, I looked for the woods references and the trees. And, of course, they were here. So mm-hmm. when you said, oh, I think this paragraph is the turning point, that I had underlined the line because it's about the trees, right? The light in the room was beginning to have an odd quality, almost as if it were taking on a presence. In a darkened form, it entered and seemed to wait. Outside, it appeared to move no farther than the edge of the faded tree line. Several times she makes that same reference Mm. that he's positioned himself where he's looking out to the tree line, and it's like this barrier. But then at the end, it breaks through that barrier. Mm. A blinding Mm. red-gold sun moves serenely from under a purple cloud. Below it, the tree line was black against the crimson sky. It formed a brittle wall, standing as if it were the frail defense he had set up in his mind to protect him from what was coming. But it comes anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So similar to a view from the woods. Mm -hmm. The red and the woods and the purple. And the crimson. There's Mm -hmm. like four or five colors mentioned right there, and I don't think there's colors mentioned very much in this story at the beginning oh, yeah. at the beginning at the, there was but yes yes at, same thing but, yeah in his imagination of the town hey um, aren't aren't red and uh like the crimson and the purple and all that aren't those the colors of the temple well okay funny you should in say that because i literally yeah. just read an essay on this for the fairy queen because duessa is in purple and gold and so i was reading about it and um so purple and gold is 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 it's it's pageantry colors and it's also associated with the Roman Catholic Church and medieval literature. Okay, I thought my dad had always had, when he was doing his research on the temple in the Old Testament had also like blue, crimson, and and purple. I wouldn't be surprised that fits in with the first are... the first line right where he feels yeah. like he's coming into a temple. Of well, the and of course, God if, basically. If O'Connor is associating the temple and the cat and the Roman Catholic Church and all that, that would make sense given her Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Like, even if it's just even if it's very subtle there her own experience would draw those comparisons. But nonetheless, I do think it's a religious imagery, the colors. Yes. Let's talk about that, um, the stuff with the guys and the milk and all that. Um, because as you said, uh, they it happens the next day and he gets them in trouble because the milk smells like smoke because they're not supposed to smoke up there and they do. And right before that, um, it's a, uh, she tells him, those two are not stupid. Like, so we're getting directly a character is telling us those two are not stupid. <laughs> they know how to look out for themselves. So that should tell us something as we're going through it, right? That we need to be aware of that they're going to, that they're capable of handling their own business. So the next day, the two cans of milk are returned. She says, um, if you were doing it, they were doing it. Don't you think I know those two? Um, and then the next afternoon, do you guys see where that is? Okay. Angelina, why don't you be the narrator? And then, um, We've got Randall and Asbury 
and Morgan. So why don't I'll just do Asbury and Graham? You can be Randall, and then Tim, you want to be Morgan? Yeah. Um, Angelina, what page is it on? 369 in R. Uh-huh. First full paragraph the next afternoon. Yes. I'm Randall. Yeah, you're Randall. No, you be you be Morgan. Morgan. Doesn't matter. Graham, you're Randall, and I'll be Asbury. Just for the sake of picking people. Got and then, so Angelina, you go read, you ahead and read all the narrator stuff. Okay. The next afternoon, when he and Randall were in the milk house pouring the fresh milk into the cans. That's not sufficiently Flannery O'Connor accent, Angelina. Oh man, on. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is gonna be. Oh, you can't make me do that. It's gonna be terrible. All right, just just do yourself. Just do Louisiana. Oh, I can't even do a Louisiana accent right. It'll all sound comical. The next afternoon when he... I'll do it slow, at least like a little southern drawl. The next afternoon when he and Randall were in the milk house pouring the fresh milk into the cans, he had picked up the jelly glass the Negroes drank out of and, inspired, had poured himself a glass full of the warm milk and drained it down. Randall had stopped pouring and had remained half-bent over the can watching him. She don't allow that, he said. That's the thing she don't allow. Asbury poured out another glassful and handed it to him. She don't allow it, he repeated. Listen, Asbury said hoarsely. The world is changing. There's no reason I shouldn't drink after you or you after me. She don't allow none of us to drink none of this milk here, Randall said. I'm sorry, this Canadian yeah, like trying to do this is like so that? great. <laughs> oh, man. Randall said, oh, I said Asbury so, can... so you're not laughing with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally laughing with you. I can't do it either. Uh-huh. Asbury yeah, continued uh-huh. to hold the glass out to him. You took the cigarette. Take he the milk. Said, it's not gonna hurt <laughs> take the milk. It's not gonna hurt my mother to lose two or three glasses of milk a day. We've gotta think free if we wanna live free. The other one had come up and was standing in the door. Don't want none of that milk. Randall said. Asbury swung around and held the glass out to Morgan. Here, boy, have a drink of this, he said. Morgan stared at him, then his face took on a decided look of cunning. Oh, oh, okay, all right. (laughs) That's you, Tim. Tim? We lost Tim. Oh, we lost Tim. (laughs) He was awfully quiet. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> uh, okay, well, hopefully he'll be back. He got dumped. It says rat on with me. No, now he's back. He's oh, back. Tim's back. Okay. All right, Tim. There. I am. See, just in time it for your ju- line. It your li- <laughs> it's my line. That's why we figured out you weren't there. Like, man, he doesn't get his cue. This guy's an actor. <laughs> Go ahead and read that part again, Angelina. Asbury swung around and held the glass out to Morgan. That's Here, Asbury's boy, have a drink. Yeah, here, boy, have a drink of this, he said. Oh, sorry. Morgan stared at him, and then his face took on a decided look of cunning. I ain't seen you drink none of it yourself, he said. Asbury despised milk. The first warm glassful had turned his stomach. He drank half of what he was... Foreshadowing! Yeah, oh, yeah. Nice. He drank half of what he was holding and handed the rest to the Negro, who took it and gazed down inside the glass as if it contained some great mystery. (laughs) Spiritual foreshadowing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The David Kern annotated edition. (laughs) Then he set it on the floor by the cooler. Don't you like milk? Asbury asked. I I likes it, but I ain't drinking none of that. 
Why? She don't allow it. Morgan said. My God! Asbury exploded. She, she, she. He had tried the same thing the next day, and the next, and the next, but he could not get them to drink the milk. He drank so much milk. (laughs) (laughs) A few afternoons later, when he was standing outside the milk house about to go in, he heard Morgan ask, How come you let him drink milk, that milk, every day? How come you let him drink that milk every day? What he do is him, Randall said. What I do is me. How come he talks so ugly about his ma? She ain't whoop him enough when he was little. <laughs> That's a great. That's all right. a great. All right. So first of all, both these conversations we've read, both the one with the priest and the one with Randall and Morgan, are really hilarious and like they're so like this is where Flannery O'Connor's sense of humor really comes out. But I I love I I love how packed these conversations are. The little asides the narrator gives us. There's so much going on here. Um, and that's why I kept stopping and saying, you know, foreshadowing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but so I really think that what's going on is they know on the one hand, yeah, they're not supposed to be drinking it and they know it. Like they're trying to honor her wishes cause they don't, well, at least they don't want to get in trouble. Um, but then I love that. And then, but then they even ask like, why is she, why is he despises mom so much? And then she says, cause she didn't whip him enough, mm-hmm. which is such a, which, which harkens back to a good man. It's hard to find. Right. Mm-hmm. The idea that if she'd had, if she'd had someone to shoot her every day of her life, she would have had, a, she would have, you know, yeah. not been the person she was. But I think that what's going on is they are smart enough to know you don't, shouldn't drink that. And so they're like, you do whatever you want to do, man, but we ain't drinking that. And then, of course, it literally turns his stomach, right? She doesn't use the word churn, I don't think. Does she, she uses the word turn, right? It turns his stomach. Which, yeah, it's a, that's a colloquialism for not feeling well or whatever. And maybe he's lactose intolerant. But <laughs> it literally turns. Like, it's a flipping. There's, there's that, what's the word that, that you've been using, Angela? The reversal. There's a reversal. And even in his gut. Like his physical gut, there's a reversal, and we've been talking so much about how for O'Connor it's, and 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 even just in, you know this is just Christianity, this is the gospel that um, the spiritual world and the physical world are not divided, and so when we get a physical turn like that, there's something spiritual going on here, and in that milk, you know, which of course is there's something you know nurturing, maternal about milk, right? Um, there's something related to a rebirth when as when there's a birth. The baby drinks milk, you know, a, the, ba- the calf drinks the milk, the oh, baby yeah. goat, whatever it is. And at the beginning of the story, and the so mom here... pointed out to him the, the cow with the really full udders, and he's disgusted by it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's great. I hadn't thought about that. But so milk is just a very nurturing infant type thing, right? And I think so all these things are tied together into this process of his, of his, of his eyes being opened and ultimately being able to receive the Holy Spirit. It's, and in some ways, it feels like the way she describes this is more true to how the Holy Spirit works in our lives than, you know, you know, almost anything any preacher could say, right? Mm. <clears throat> and despite the fact that she says that, you know, you have to, uh, you can't just pray by writing, by creating art. Yes, the priest says there is something prayerful about this story, I think. Mm. I, I, have a, I have a quick question. Um, I'm sure you guys have addressed the... Uh, the... Probably not. <laughs> um. Flannery O'Connor's naming her characters. We have in a few places, like in Greenleaf. Yeah. Okay. It's it seems to be very um, particular, and so I wondered if I wondered if you guys had any thoughts on the main character's name in this Asbury Porter Fox. 
<laughs> if it if it has any meaning or if it's just a black hat, that's a black hat. Oh, and a black hat's never a black hat. That is nonsense. <laughs> I, I want to, like, fight every time someone says something like that. Like, I, I, well, I, let's go. I talked to Ralph Wood about that, and he has some interesting things to say about it because he both agrees and disagrees with you. It's interesting. Oh, okay. Did you guys read anything into the name? I did. I or thought it was a Methodist it? reference, just like the West. That's what I thought it was. Schofield thing. Yeah. Okay. Do we know of any preachers? I mean, there's the only thing I could think of with Fox was like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, but I couldn't couldn't make that connection. No, I don't. It's well, interesting. Well, I mean, he they, thinks they... he's a martyr, like Julian. He's a martyr. Huh. Ah, that's interesting. I don't know what and the they give porter us his... is, but yeah. Yeah, they give us the middle name. That might be his ostentatiousness. That could be, yeah, because that is very dramatic. Yes, to put his full name. Yeah. I mean, it's a base like yeah, comma yeah, yeah. Esquire, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I just I, I I couldn't pull anything out of that, and I I usually assume that she's trying to tell us. Something oh, definitely. Through those names. You know when so she makes the line about you should write another Gone with the Wind, I I couldn't help yeah. but wonder if somebody had told that to Flannery O'Connor. Oh, oh totally. And then she says, put the war in it. It'll put make it the... longer. Yeah, exactly. Like, we need another Gone with the Wind. Like, like, I can just imagine that this read very autobiographical to me. Like, how many of those conversations did she have with people about, you know, oh, so what's your I book? Actually... What are you writing on? I feel like I read somewhere that she actually talked about that and how um, – I can't remember where now. Shoot. But it, about how – um, she was purposefully trying to avoid things like writing about the war and these these those sorts of things because um, they hampered the ability to like people couldn't see past them something like that. Well, she and definitely so doesn't want to stay trapped in you know antebellum nostalgia. You're right. Um, so a quick Google search: there was a preacher in the United Methodist Church in Ireland, and. She, um, of course, she's Irish, um, named Francis Asbury. Well, in the town where I grew up, it was Asbury Methodist Church. That's why I made the yeah. connection. Asbury's kind of the inheritor to John Wesley in the Methodist That's tradition. That's what I thought. Okay, yeah. He was one of two first, one of the first two bishops of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States. Yeah. He spread Methodism in America as, sec- as part of the Second Great Awakening, and he founded several schools during his lifetime. Although his own formal was education was limited, his journal is valuable to scholars as a, for account of its frontier for its account of frontier society. Okay. Um, so there's there's got to be something to that for sure. She yeah, if I were to if I were to bet artists. the significance of the I, I would bet Asbury's the the Methodist theologian has got to be the namesake for Asbury Fox. I don't know about the Fox part, Fox. Fox's Book of Martyrs, that makes some sense. It's a Protestant tome against the kind of Russian, the, the Roman oppression of the um, Protestant Revolution. I, that, I guess that could work. Okay, so Samuel Porter Jones was an American lawyer and businessman from Georgia who became a prominent Methodist revivalist preacher across the southern ah. United States. Huh. Lived from 1847 till 1906. Huh. So Georgian lawyer businessman met prominent Methodist in where she lived. Pretty sure she knew that. So that yeah. this all has to be playing together mm-hmm. here. It's interesting that she she plays on the Methodist so much. Yes, I mean, Tim, are there just a lot of Methodists in Georgia? There are a lot of Methodists in Georgia. I mean, and, well, there are a lot in the South in general. And 
Methodism, the relationship between Methodism and the Second Great Awakening is really strong. Yeah, that's true. And I would think, I mean, I don't know, but I would think that Flannery O'Connor would not look upon the Second Great Awakening as sort of like the high point of American religious fervor. It's kind of, it's where things start kind of getting divorced from traditional Christianity Uh in the way that, 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 yeah. yeah, revivalism has much more to do with kind of this like whipping up into an emotional state so that one has oh, and yo, look, a, a, few done, a few women's down, you know, she wants him to go talk to Mr. Bush, the retired Methodist minister. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think that as far as the second great awakening goes, I think that the great awakening, <laughs> um, I, I think that she, uh, probably had a complicated relationship with it. Like uh, she seems to, um, have some sympathy, like narrative sympathy for a lot of, um, revivalist type like Mrs. Greenleaf yeah yeah I think so too um, but of course she also was very active in trying to avoid being directly Catholic uh, Greg I mean um, Ralph Wood in the interview he pointed out that her name she was named Mary O'Connor and she took the Flannery there was her middle name it was a family name because she thought that it sounded less Irish Catholic than Mary O'Connor ah, and it does. as Ralph Wood as Ralph Wood said, the name Mary O'Connor for an Irish Catholic is like, that's more Catholic than the Pope. So, uh, <laughs> that's what he said to me. Yes. Uh, and I, I, see, I, uh, there were a few people kind of commenting on the Facebook page in, in, in this sort of same vein. And I have never felt like uh, Flannery O'Connor is proselytizing for the Roman Catholic Church. That her vision is yeah. so much bigger than that. I don't feel like these stories are not Protestant versus Catholic. This is, you know, Christianity versus modernity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, we are at almost an hour and 15 minutes, um, some of which we might actually be able to use. Um, <laughs> let's go. Let's get some final thoughts from each of you. Um, Angelina, ladies first, final thoughts from you. I really liked this story. It, it's, so, it, it's good to see that she doesn't get in a rut, you know. She mixes it up, and I like that. And I guess one thing I'm looking at is the line right above what we're talking – right below what we just read – a death was coming to him legitimately as a justification, and there are there are several stories where she plays on the dual meaning of justification and brings up the theological aspects of that. Uh, especially, mm-hmm. was it in Wise Blood that it's no man with a good car needs to be justified? Yeah, no, no, wait, or is, is, that that, is Wise po- Blood or a good man? It's hard to find. No, no, it's yeah, one I, of I her novels. I think it's Wise Blood. It's one of the it's novels. Blood, yeah. So someone with, that knows more will be able to correct us if we're wrong. Right, it's one of the novels for sure. Um, I think it's wise blood, though. So just yeah, that's another thing we can be on the lookout for is the dual meaning of theological terms, especially justification. Tim, final thoughts? I mean, John Stockton, Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen. Tim's been every man today. <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't know I have been every man about, today. I love this story. You know what? I, I get a lot out of our discussions. I usually kind of come into these thinking – Oh, I really like the story, and I usually walk out thinking, "Oh, yeah, I really yeah. love that story." Thanks yeah, to y'all's too, commentary. The, the conversations really, really help. Well, hopefully, our listeners feel somewhat the same, given the the darkness of these previous stories. The enduring chill is a nice change of pace, though. I think I'm going to just say thank you if you've hung in there with us. <laughs> There's another really funny one coming. Hey, up. Revelation is um, a very funny story. I bet, yeah, that's one of my favorites. It is my favorite. yeah, it is. Let's toss it over to Graham for some final thoughts here. Graham, thanks for joining us. Yeah. I hope we let you have enough airtime. Sure. 
That's your final thought? <laughs> <laughs> you want it? My final thought. Oh, there oh, was a picture. There was a picture there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> what do we not talk about that you want to talk about? Um, I, I don't know. I, I we love didn't talk the story. about the sister. Right. Yeah, why one, bother? Um, I did have a... Co- <laughs> I did have a question on that, actually. Would this story be any different without the sister in it? Is there a role for the sister that... It's a great question. Um, ma- ...makes sense in this story, or is there a reason? The She's only- kind of a foil at nothing else, I guess. She seems to be dismissing his illness. Mm-hmm. She does see through that, doesn't she? Totally. Yeah, I think more than everybody. And she's the one that brings him to the revival as a child. To get baptized, um, right? Oh. Ooh, man, there it is yeah. again. The baptism, the water. But yeah. she's in it so sparsely that it's it's uh She does it's just interesting. And of course we could have talked a little bit more about maybe what Flannery O'Connor believed about baptism and the Holy Ghost. Yeah. But that that maybe that's the point where it all begins, you know, in, in O'Connor's mind. But this this story I think is a masterpiece. Um like David said, I don't know if it's her best. I it probably isn't. Um, but it, it connects with me. Um, I, I don't even think I can explain why very well. Um, but this one, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad somebody doesn't get killed in it. Um, <laughs> so that's a nice change of pace. But all the characters in this story, the three previous you've read, they are all uh, like you can you can see the legitimacy in almost every single character's way of thinking, and. And it even in a story, it'll switch um, like things that Julian thinks about his mother. You're like, this is right, you know, um, but he's self-righteous mm. and, and he chooses the wrong thing immediately. Or he's, you know, they're all like these gray characters in a lot of ways. And that's what we are. And uh, it's it's just kind of a, it's just kind of an incredible writing, I think. Yeah. Just all this, all these different shades like yeah, she's the she's the real Fifty Shades of Grey, right Flannery <laughs> O'Connor. Absolutely, I'm so glad you reminded me that he was baptized. I forgot that, and as yeah. we were talking about the Holy Spirit and the gradual process, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if he was baptized as a child because Flannery O'Connor would have thought that that was the moment when that process would have begun, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I would, yeah, I would, this I would, idea that you know he can't escape he can't escape the Holy Ghost because he got it as a child when he was baptized. And it's constantly pursuing like a bird in motion. Yes, almost. and he and as a child he he sees it and thinks of it. You know, the duel, the bird, and and the icicles. And and hopefully, and I guess his imagination was open. His his eyes were open bit by bit. His imagination was open, and therefore his heart was open just enough that it didn't take the goring of the bull. Or whatever that, that right. it's a little more ho- it's a little more hopeful, mm. and I think in that way maybe maybe what maybe why it appeals to you and I, Graham, is because it feels like it could be about the way the Holy Spirit actually works in most of us. Like it feels more true to the way we experience the Holy Spirit working in our lives, as opposed to like it's hard to imagine what it, like getting gored by a bull and getting killed. It's, that's not something we can imagine experiencing to us experiencing experiencing personally you know and the other thing i thought of as we were talking was he's not he's foolish but he's not hard-hearted like we've seen in Mm. some of the other characters he doesn't seem to be resistant to the grace like so he's he's almost always seeing it but he can't quite break through but but his reasons for not he thinks he's resistant but he's not really right but it's not like it's not like mrs may where he's screaming get out of here you know but the sister is the atheist. She's the one who's closed herself off. And the baptism to her is a joke, right? It's all a big joke. Hmm. 
she's more resistant to it. And I feel like he's foolish, but he's more open. And as the story ends, the hope is that then, as the priest says, he prays for his mother and his sister, right? That the, 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 the reversal in his own life allows him to pray for her. And then clearly O'Connor believes, based on those, that, that, that there's power in prayer, right? Right, right. So, okay, well, we should wrap up. We got things to do, people to, people to meet with, you know, set up for the Kindred Conference this weekend. Yeah, I got to jump in my car. You guys are awesome. Thanks for letting me come on. Oh, thanks, Graham. Uh, that was great. I really enjoyed yeah, your Thanks interview. for coming have on, to do Graham. this again. Yeah, some year we'll do it again. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've I've loved listening to you guys when I do, um, and I've loved the Facebook group. That's awesome. The discussion on there has been fantastic. I love the disagreements, the discussion, uh, the camaraderie almost of it all. So mm. it's uh, it's fun that you guys are active in that too. Yeah, so speaking of which, if you have not, if you're listening and you have not joined the Facebook group, head over to Facebook, search the Close Reads, and you should be able to find that pretty easily. And then uh, we have some Close Reads mugs out there. There are a few left if you want to oh, order. Oh, those are the uh, best. I'm so we, excited. Those will be, those, we've ordered those. Those will be in, then we'll get them out to you guys. Um, please remember to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you access podcasts. Um, we have the Close Reads feed itself. Please do subscribe to that. In the long, the long run, we may be splitting that off exclusively so that you it's really the only place you can get it we're debating that um there's some pros and cons of that so um and then of course if you want to subscribe to the network if you haven't yet please do that as well um and with that let's say goodbye for graham Pittman, for angelina stanford for tim mcintosh and for all of us here at cersei i'm david kern saying farewell on close reads on the cersei institute podcast network talk to you next time Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.